Business Minds, presented by the Business Journals of Florida. Brought to you by Tico People's Gas, at the heart of Florida's energy. We visit the intersection of family business, philanthropy, and the arts in this episode as Tampa Bay Business Journal editor Alexis Milner connects with Liz Dimmitt, CEO and co-founder of Fairgrounds Projects and managing partner of Dimmitt Chevrolet. Liz Dimmitt, welcome to the Florida Business Minds podcast. Thank you for having me. It's really wonderful to have you here. And for those that don't know, you are a fourth generation car dealer and now managing partner of Dimmit Chevrolet and Clearwater. It's a dealership that is celebrating its 100th year this year. And you're also a champion of the visual arts and the CEO and co-founder of the Fairgrounds Projects, Fairgrounds St. Pete. And that's a destination immersive art space in South St. Petersburg. Uh, We have a lot to explore around creative industries, but let's start with cars. You spent 17 years in New York before moving back to Pinellas County in late 2017, where you ascended to the leadership role of the dealership under some pretty sobering circumstances. And we'll talk a bit about your mental health advocacy in a bit. But first, I'm just curious, what are your earliest memories of the family business? So I don't remember not going into the family business and it being a part of life. If we drove near that part of town or any other Chevy dealership, wherever we were in the world, We went as kids. Uh, We spent a lot of time at the dealership with dad, not necessarily doing anything useful. I remember being on the showroom honking horns and probably putting greasy fingers all over cars. And, you know, I'm a little bit older. So that was back in the day where computer rooms were like big rooms and they were cold. But you could play Centipede and Frogger in the computer room on one of the setups there. So we would brave the colds. And, you know, hang out in there playing some, you know, early video games. Well, that must have kept you busy. But did you get away with things just because you were part of the family or were you sort of annoying and just people tolerated it? We got pretty reprimanded by my parents and were made to help out and be useful at the dealership because we weren't sort of allowed to get away with things. But then again, we were kids and we thought it was hilarious to, you know, honk a horn or, you know, crawl in and out of every single car, especially any sort of Corvette, Camaro that, you know, was there, we would definitely, you know, get into them. Well, and the greasy fingers part would probably be fairly difficult as you, especially given your perspective now, which is interesting. I mean, I am curious a little bit of what you've learned about those the earliest years of the dealership since you've been in this role. Have you sort of had some awareness that you didn't have about, I mean, 100 years, my goodness. Well, I think the most awareness and the main business thing that I learned growing up is just customer service. And car dealerships are a big part of the community and a big part of people's lives because in here in America, everyone sort of needs a car and you're a big employer and making a car purchase is a big purchase. So we get really engaged with the community and people sort of hear your name a lot so they know who you are. And that customer service of just running into anyone out and about, anyone seeing your name on a credit card or a driver's license, recognizes you and asks questions, but really being a good community member and thinking about customer service in a really long term. In the car world and in my family's business, I'm not hoping to get, you know, a buck from you today. I'm hoping that you'll service your car with us for the next 50 years and that your kids will do it and you'll buy cars over time. So having those long-term relationships isn't really important. And I watch my dad and my mom be good community members and think that way, I think my whole life. So I really grew up with that instilled within me. That lends a little bit to the connection 
between cars and visual arts, which we'll get into in a minute. But my understanding is that 22 was one of the, if not the most profitable year in the history, right? You guys did very well. And part of that, from my understanding, is that your role in evolving the sales and services processes to especially incorporate some women-centric strategies, and you touched on customer experience, but, you know, dollars are green and women love cars too, right? I mean, that was a big thing. It is a big thing. I mean, 2022 was a great year for the car industry because of the pandemic and short supply increasing demand. So prices for cars were better. So I can't take credit for the entire market. But I think something that I have brought to the dealership is that constant reminder of the importance of selling to women and the buying power women have. I mean, we saw that hugely in 2023, right, with the Taylor Swift and Beyonce concerts being the things that the economy talked about and sort of changing the economy in whatever city they went to. But, you know, really in a household, women usually have a big part, if not the say, in making the buying decisions of the family and or maybe are the purse keeper of the family. So there's no more of that good old guy talking to the husband selling the car and not, you know, sort of ignoring the wife or the girlfriend, you know, you really have to be engaged with women when you sell them things. And women actually ask a lot more questions and are more interested in that relationship. And, you know, having going a little bit deeper, I think, than, you know, male consumers a lot of the time. Well, and I imagine part of that success is your influence on culture. And in a culture that has been historically male dominated, I mean, there are some classic examples of women pioneers in in the car business, but not many. But it sounds to me like you've been able to have a role in, in helping the culture understand what it's like to report to a woman leader. It's been very interesting and very fun to be a part of that sort of evolution. Because, you know, in the fourth generations of even my family, I'm the first woman to do it. So it took us four generations to get there. It's just really fun. And we have a really wonderful leadership team at the dealership at Demet Chevrolet. But some of those people have been there for 25 plus years. So they have known me since I was a child. So that's also interesting to sort of all of a sudden be, you know, have someone reporting to you that knew you when you were in the showroom honking horns and putting sticking fingers on cars. I imagine that has both a little weird for them, but also pretty endearing, you know, of as they get to know you and realize your management style is is to create a culture where people are valued as I get the sense of you. And and I, I would think most humans would find that really make it a good place to work. It is. You know, I hope that, you know, that remains always to be the case and that our employees really think of us like that. And just like I'm multi-generational, we have other employees that have generations of their family who have worked with us. So that's just really rewarding and fun, too. And then just a quick note about sort of the industry overall. I mean, given your performance, it does sort of, you know, spin differently than what I'm reading about sort of the industry overall being fairly flat. Predictions this year of, I think, 2% growth attributed to various forces, you know, that don't necessarily go with the growth market. But do you pay attention to some of those wider trends in the industry or because of the things we've just been talking about, your outlook is probably a little brighter? I think my outlook is always tries to be a little bit brighter, but I'm definitely following trends and listening to the industry. And right now we're going through a really interesting time where GM and Chevy was really full in, you know, the EV thing was coming and we were going full EV fleets in just a couple of years. And that has really, you've seen it get backed off of 
over the last couple months and maybe the transition won't happen so fast. I mean, I think we're still heading there in the future. So that's been a really interesting trend to watch because, of course, it hugely affects our sales, our infrastructure, but very much the service department because servicing electric vehicles versus internal combustion engines is different and uh, requires different tools and uh, different infrastructure. But something I'm really proud of about Dimit Chevrolet is that we went fully solar in 2022 in preparation for being able to charge up more EVs over the years and make that one affordable for us, but also just green for our planet. You know, if that's the future, we want to be a part of it. So we have both the service department and our sales buildings, which is a couple of acres of rooftops with solar and are totally able to offset our monthly cost right now and our usage with solar. Well, that's great. I mean, people look for sort of tangible examples of where that can work and make actually a difference in your carbon footprint. And that seems like it's part of it. Mm-hmm. Turning back to you, I mean, I think in 1997, you probably weren't expecting this path necessarily. And dealt with some pretty tough um, events in your family that led to this. I mean, I know you're working on transitioning some of that into some advocacy around mental health. But, you know, talk a little bit about that and just unexpected and how life can turn and and how you've you know had to manage that process. It was not on my life's journey to be working at the dealership, and that was really my brother's job. And he was Lawrence Hunley Dimmitt the fourth, and just um, sort of a born and bred car dealer, and was working there. And in 2017, he died by suicide which is the worst thing that my family has ever experienced and changed all of our lives forever. And not just losing a brother, but also having this family business that had him as the dealer's successor underneath my father. And we have a staff of right now 122 who, you know, get their paychecks from our family being there year after year and depend on us. And all of a sudden, there was, for one second, maybe a question of what was happening. But I happened to be in Florida when my brother passed and just started going into the dealership right away with my dad. And really, I was living in New York City at that time with my husband and working there and had our lives there. But I never really went back to New York. I've sort of been in Florida and sort of stayed here since... That occurred and my husband eventually, you know, we bought a house and he moved down here too. I spent the first two years living with my parents as an adult. That was very interesting. And it was obviously a really, I mean, it's still, it doesn't get actually easier. It was a very hard time. It is a hard thing to go through, but then also to try to help a company through it. And you have your staff who were very close, watched my brother grow up, had mentored him my dad reeling from the whole thing, my parents going through a huge loss, and then a company who, you know, he was there in and out every day, you know, it was really his legacy. And then to go in and try to be not like the new Lawrence Hunley Dimmitt the fourth, but hi, I'm Liz Dimmitt. And, you know, I'm going to start to do this too. And not only prove myself as a leader, because I didn't have 50 years of car experience or 15, mm-hmm. like my brother and my dad has hit 50 years at the dealership. You know, I, people didn't know me as being involved in the automotive industry, but I did have a lot of retail experience and financial experience to bring to the table. So sort of having to prove yourself as that stable leader, 
helping people transition through an incredibly rough time, dealing with it myself, you know, having like my brother's files to go through and what do you do with someone's business cards and all those mm -hmm. sort of things, you know, I'll save mm -hmm. 10 of them and I'll throw away 500, you know, so it just, it's one of those things that really hits you very hard, especially because we have so many family pictures and ephemera around the dealership. But it's also been a really wonderful experience for me and my father, and I really enjoy business. I'm an entrepreneur, and I like being in there and being a part of a deal and talking with people about strategy. So it took a little time for me and the whole team to gel and me to really understand, you know, the car industry, I think, maybe has more industry acronyms than any other. I mean, there's just so many different things to know. Um, so, you know, it took me a while to, you know, know what they were talking about with every single thing. But again, I've sort of just been around it my whole life and heard about it and always sort of kept up with the industry news and talked about it at the dinner table. So that leap wasn't that hard. But earning my keep at the dealership in people's minds about being a leader that could help them with things and help raise our game as a dealership did take time. I imagine and professional development comes in ways we don't expect. Mm -hmm. And this is a classic example. And and just briefly, I know you're parlaying some of that into awareness around wellness and mental health and talking about suicide. And it's a very difficult subject for anybody to talk about. And so I'm grateful for your candor. But then making a difference and trying to promote awareness. And so people are talking about it and perhaps saving some lives in the process. Yeah, my family actually, with the help of some of my brother's dearest friends, created a foundation called Love for Lawrence. And it is about reducing the stigma about talking about mental health and suicide ideation and basically saving lives. And we actually hosted our fourth Reeling in Stigma event last night at Dimmit Chevrolet with a wonderful speaker, Drew Peterson. And that's always very hard because it brings up everything and you have to talk about. The speaker was talking about what he went through with being a incredible, famous professional skier and doing all these wonderful trips and having people all over the world adore him and think he had the perfect life. But really, this whole time he was dealing with mental health issues and really wanting to die by suicide and considering that. Mm -hmm. And of course, hearing his story makes you think about, you know, my brother and what he was going through. But that importance of other people hearing that. Mental health is something that everyone has to address and our brain health is very important and that we should be talking about it in the best way to prevent issues and suicide prevention comes from talking about it and having really hard conversations, which is, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Are you considering suicide? You know, going right there with the conversation and bringing it to the forefront. Well, that's important work, and I'm glad you're doing it, you and your family, and I'm sure that will continue to evolve and, again, helping people. Liz Dimmitt joining us. Next, she shares her passion for the arts when Florida Business Minds continues. People's Gas, working with businesses across Florida to lower energy usage and costs with efficient natural gas. Get cash back energy conservation rebates when you install new natural gas equipment. Learn more at peoplesgas.com slash biz rebates. Turning to the joy portion of the program, Fairground St. Pete is in 15,000 square feet of space, I believe, and it's part of the Warehouse Arts District, and you co-founded it with Mikhail Mansion. And it opened in September 2021. You've got dozens of artists, much to see for young and old. And your aesthetic, as I've read, is retro-futuristic with a nod to the World's Fair. 
Mm-hmm. Um, its tagline is art for all, play for all, joy for all. All these things are things I can relate to. And part of that I know is we, that just seeing immense growth and interest in immersive art because it's super fun and, and puts smiles on people's faces. But but you really are helping a lot of artists speak and have a uh, voice. But again, getting back to the original concept, and I know you were at NYU and you did a lot of work around cultural and creative industries, but where did the actual spark for Fairground St. Pete happen? Well, I am an eighth generation Floridian and I love all things Florida. I love Florida trivia and just everything Florida. And then of course I love art and I love immersive art and, um, just doing fun, unexpected things and helping artists really be on a bigger stage. And while I was working in New York, I was coming down to the Tampa Bay area a lot and working with the Vinnick Family Foundation on their very large scale cultural projects and really just had so much fun doing that in my hometown and knew I wanted to do something big and immersive and meaningful like that. And then, you know, after my brother's passing, being at the dealership and being here back in Florida, it just was really the time was right to start to think about how I could, you know, find a wonderful team and activate something wonderful here in Florida, especially Tampa Bay, because we have such a thriving and rich cultural community and just so many wonderful cultural resources here. It's been really fun to sort of put them all under one roof and make this whole world celebrating what we call weird, wacky, wonderful Florida. Yeah, I'm a photographer. And part of that for me was somebody putting a Kodak Instamatic in my hands and taking me into a dark room and watching images come out of the developer and, and have long been fascinated in, in what I call Floridiana, which is oh. just, you know, a kind of a, it's just weird and, and wacky. But mm-hmm. for you, was there, given the car dealerships, was there a specific path towards visual arts as a, again, as a kid? Yes. My mother is a working artist as my grandmother. So my mom had an art studio in our house. My dad is actually, his brother is a photographer. He's an incredible photographer, has a great eye. So we were a family that went to art museums and played outdoors and did conservation and outdoor stuff. You know, we were in the wilderness, in the woods or at an art museum. That's the stuff that we did. And then I just watched my mom, you know, make art my whole life. So it's been a part of it from the beginning. Well, that makes a lot of sense. What a fantastic thing to parlay that into this destination experience. And I am curious a bit about, you know, I mean, obviously the Vinnick family and Jeff and Penny and their commitment to the arts has been transformational, not only to arts and culture, but all the philanthropic work that they've done. But, you know, there is a lot of sort of foundational work happening to in the placemaking that comes with creative industries. And you know, there's been strong developments of museums across on both sides of the bay. But I am wondering kind of now as you're part of that foundation, where there may still be thing maybe falling short a little bit when it comes to our arts assets in terms of economic development. Well, I think finally the arts and culture, and I take a very broad definition of art, are being understood and recognized and respected for the economic drivers that they are. And Tampa and St. Pete have both come to that conclusion, St. Pete a little bit earlier, but both are very on board in support of arts and culture. And I think that is incredibly wonderful. Where I think we can improve in Tampa Bay is actually helping the individual artist by buying art here, giving art as gifts, and 
you know, we have wonderful collectors around, but a lot of times they're collecting in New York or LA or on trips. And we have wonderful artists right here in Tampa Bay who are worth having shows with, showing in our museums and collecting from. So making sure that we have the resources, the affordable housing and the opportunities for artists to be able to afford to live here, make art here and sell art here is really important because those artists and creatives, and I don't mean just visual arts, I mean performing arts, music, photography, food, dance, theater, you know, all of it is so important to the fabric of our society. And they make Tampa Bay cool. They bring that sort of soul and character to us and making sure those people can still afford to live and make work here is really important. It's a great point. And this may, well, this is a shameless plug for the Business Journal's Book of Lists because this year mm-hmm. it just came out in December. And one of my projects for it was to, in our chapter headings, celebrate arts organizations more well known and not, kind of a combination of the two, with images in, as our chapter headings. And I wrote little pieces about it. And one of them was from uh, the team at Morgan's Creative Clay. And. Yeah. Some of our discussion that we had was around the program of bringing in artists, but mm-hmm. they were having challenges getting people to come because we are, we are a long past being affordable. And so there are real issues around that. There are. And I, I first of all, thank you for doing that. It's important for the arts to be recognized within business you know, reporting and media because the arts are big business, you know, very big business. But it, it is true. It's, you know, I've lost staff members at Fairground St. Pete because they have moved away to basically places where they can afford to live. You know, they can't afford to pay the rent here. So it is very hard. And for arts organizations, you can only pay your staff so much and then you want your staff to live close. You don't want everyone to have to drive an hour and a half to get somewhere. That's not good for anyone's life. So it, it is a challenge that we need to continue to work on on both sides of the bay. It is. And so are there some, if somebody's listening to this, and this has statewide reach, which is great. One of the things we love about about the business journals, and especially around the country and in Florida, we have four business journals, and this podcast rotates amongst us. And so I think this is not limited to Tampa Bay. We see arts being a critical economic driver in all our major cities. But are there any recommendations you have for folks who might want to be a part of that solidifying foundational effort to help them grow and prosper? I mean, I think one, show up to arts and cultural events, be a fan, buy the art, buy the ticket, go to the show and tell your friends to do the same thing. Uh, That's what arts and culture needs. But also we need public advocacy. We need our politicians and leaders to know that we care so that they care. I think we have leadership in Tampa Bay that does care and understands that importance. But they always need to be reminded because, you know, the dollars are scarce for what you support. And then just recognizing that having, I think, a diverse public and diverse residency living here in Tampa Bay, and that means economically diverse and people working in non-traditional jobs, is what makes it exciting and fun. And, you know, those are the places and the things and the people that you meet that really are the encounters that are really memorable and you tell your friends about or the great family vacation or the thing that really sparks your interest or a conversation. I mean, they bring the pizzazz to being here in Tampa Bay. They do. And it's placemaking that draws folks. I mean, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. Kind of, I mean, I know that we were living in Miami before I was promoted to this job and had come to the Dali and hadn't been here and, but made a, made a week, you know, a long weekend out of it. I mean, it's, 
Well, and you like photography. And I mean, what better than the arts are so important about empathy and teaching us about other people's lives or important causes in the world or, you know, they're important to telling the story in a way that touches our heart so that we care. Right. And I mean, photography is one of the things that does that the best. So, you know, that's how you learn about other cultures or other people or causes or the environment or an educational cause. You know, you learn about it usually through the arts and culture. You know, that's what grabs you. That's how you hear the story and you want to learn more. Arts institutions are starved for funding, though, and it's tricky because you've got so many nonprofits. And this is a community that uh, based on our nonprofit of the year awards, which is designed to celebrate and honor fiscal responsibility and stewardship in those organizations versus, you know, fraud. But I know from my own volunteer work is that it's tough out there in terms of finding, and I'm sure for you, we're trying to raise money, Vidic Family Foundation being part of that, or Family Office being part of that helped. But I'm mm -hmm. sure it's a struggle every day. You want to increase ticket sales. You want to be able to cover costs and do great things. It is a struggle every day. And, you know, having a startup is an incredibly humbling process. <laughs> you know, I learn every day and I learn most of the time from mistakes. So we definitely, you know, want to sell that ticket and need to drive traffic. But something I think that is really interesting about Fairground St. Pete is, you know, we are a for-profit and it is a different kind of arts model where we paid artists to create this incredible destination. And we did very fair, in my opinion, commissioning to pay the artist already to make their work and have it at Fairground St. Pete. And then they just have the public coming in and viewing it and they can learn more about the artist. They can buy things from the artist in our souvenir shop go to the artist's website, you know, we have the information about the artist available. So I think it's another way in a non-traditional way to help support the arts where we think about why people come to Florida. It's because of the arts and the culture and the environment and the fun things to do. And the artists, and especially in St. Pete, are a big part of that. So we recognize that at Fairground St. Pete and paid the artists to make these wonderful commissions, to make this wonderful destination, and then try to still, you know, hire them to do more art, sell their merchandise, do things and, you know, keep on putting money in their pockets and recognizing that they are the reason people come to Fairground St. Pete. They are the reason people are in St. Pete a lot of the time. And, you know, they deserve to be rewarded for that. Must be exciting for them, too, because those opportunities are few and far between, I imagine, for certain really talented visual artists. And I know from looking at pictures of the experience that it's just some incredible work there. And as we begin to wind up, just are you constantly shifting out? I mean, I'm sure there are folks who are somewhat permanently installed, but are there continuing opportunities for artists? And are you hearing as word gets around the globe about this institution? Are you able to get more artists involved? And I know you have expansion coming up. Yeah, so we're always layering on more arts and technology. And we also have a lot of creative technologists and work with creative technologists to make the installation. So we're always layering on art and technology. There's always something new to see. And then we do change things and evolve things over time. Your sort of favorites are still there, but we infill and then we change out less successful things and, you know, put in new things. So we have an expansion sort of opening up next week, Thursday, January 25th. We have something called the Bait Ball coming. It is an expansion for fairgrounds and it's an entire installation, uh, very Florida centric. It's by a Tampa native, Devin Brady. And it's a bait ball is a phenomenon in the sea when a school of fish, a bait fish sort of come together and sort of swarm in a circle. And that is what this artwork is about. And it is an eight foot spherical zoetrope, which is a sort of 
old way of animating things, but it has an entire installation around with many other collaborative partners that came together, sort of a caged area that you walk through. There's wonderful lighting, a soundtrack, seaweed, all of it. So it's just going to be, a. I think it'll be a new, really iconic installation for us, like the Mermaid Star Motel sign that people just sort of have to get their photo taken in front of and talk about, you know, all over town. Exciting. And as a for-profit institution, are you profitable? Yeah. 2023 was a struggle. We came out of the gate really strong. And then we, you know, are scraping by in 2023. And 2024, I think, is where a lot of the changes we learned last year a lot and had some growing pains. And I think 2024 will return to being super strong again. But last year was a hard year for a lot of institutions. Ticket sales were hard. There's a lot of competition out there disposable income down and there's a lot of things to do and places to spend your money so you got to have some quality experiences for people to come to yours to come spend their time and money there well Liz, it's been a wonderful conversation so great to spend some time with you thank you for being a part of our podcast and we look forward to watching what happens in all of your interests thank you so much thank you for downloading florida business minds presented by the business journals of florida Brought to you by Tico People's Gas at the heart of Florida's energy.